Sunday. I'm Sam. Grateful to be speaking to you this morning. And uh, if you've heard me before, you know I love all types of music. And uh, we've done some Brit pop. We've done some old school country. We've done some jazz. We've done some opera. Today we did rap. Today we did rap because rap's pretty great. That song is called DNA. It's by a guy named Kendrick Lamar. If you didn't recognize him from the picture. He's pretty popular right now. How many Kendrick Lamar lovers out there? You can raise your hand. It's cool. Don't be ashamed. I love him. Okay. That's good. We got like three people. That's great. No, he's awesome. So I love old school rap. Curtis Blow, Run DMC, Beastie Boys, NWA, Skilo, Public Enemy, Kumo D, Bone Thugs. Bum, 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 bum. Digital Underground. Spelled with an umpty. Let's goes on. When I was in high school, the East Coast, West Coast beef was going down. So Warren G, Dr. Dre, all that, Biggie, Tupac. I'm squarely in the Biggie camp. You cannot dissuade me from that. Biggie over Tupac to set the record straight. I'll tell you that as well. Then I stopped listening to rap for a good long while. And some things happened in my life where I needed to kind of sort through who I was, my identity, what I wanted to do personally, what I wanted to do professionally. And rap kind of came back around as a kind of a therapy element to that for me. And I had some songs that were kind of like life songs for me. Big Sean, do y'all know who that is? Bounce Back was one of my songs. Last night took an L, took a loss. It's not a bounce back, right? All right? And then uh, also one, another Kendrick Lamar song um, called Element. Can't play <laughs> either one of these for you guys this morning. It's good to get that on their authenticity, to get that on um, the air at all to play this morning. But can't play those for you. But that Kendrick Lamar album won the Pulitzer Prize for music in 2017. That was a big deal. And because it's normally a, a jazz or a, a classical uh, musical album that normally wins that. But it was such a meaningful album to so many people, it, it won that award. So Kendrick Lamar, though profanity-laced and a little rough around the edges, is an extremely outspoken Christian. I don't know if you guys know that. His, his raps are, are just filled with biblical allusions, uh, religious ideas, and scripture quoting all the way through. So, you know, Kanye West, everybody's like, oh, Kanye, you're a Christian now. Joel Osteen has you on your program. You know, great, whatever. But uh, Kendrick was doing that way before. And uh, I know Ken, uh, Kanye thinks that's his idea to be a Christian, and no one else thought of it before him, if you know Kanye. But uh, Kendrick was doing it a long time before that. And so a lot of Kendrick's albums are spiritually motivated. They wrestle with the realities of what a young African man is labeled as versus what God says that he is. For example, on this album, he quotes the curse of the law out of Deuteronomy 28 and reflects on how he's supposed to reflect all that's bad in society as a, as a black man. But DNA is his song about what truly resides in a person, someone's DNA, someone's identity. And that if you let other people tell you who you are, you'll forget 
who God says that you are. I'll read you some of the lyrics again in case you didn't hear them. I will not rap them for you, but I will read them. I got loyalty. I've got royalty inside my DNA. Cocaine, quarter piece, got war and peace inside my DNA. See the distinction? I've got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA. I've got both, but I've got hustle though, got ambition. I've got flow inside my DNA. I was born like this since one year old. I'm like this immaculate conception. I transform like this, perform like this. Yeshua's, that's the name for Jesus, Yeshua's new weapon. I've got realness. I just kill it because it's in my DNA. I've got millions. I've got riches building in my DNA. I've got dark. I've got evil that rots inside my DNA. I got off. I've got troublesome heart inside my DNA. Can you feel him wrestle with the two sides of who he is in those, those lyrics? Wrestle with what the world tells him, awareness of the mistakes that he's made as a young man. But Kendrick also knows that he is Yeshua's new weapon that he's got royalty, that he's got loyalty inside of his DNA because that's who God says that he is. It's a beautiful, profanity-laden piece of poetry about hope and self-awareness. If you have never listened to it, feel free to listen to it. Listen to it without any children around in your car, and you can enjoy that on your own. So we'll come back to that idea about your DNA, your identity, over and over this morning as we talk. So today we're continuing our series on God Part Two, we're going through passages in the book of Matthew that are representative of the new exodus of what God wants to do. A couple of things to remember about the book of Matthew. Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. In other words, Matthew is specifically interested in making sure that you understand why Jesus is the Messiah, that promised, long-awaited king um, of the Jewish people. That's something that he's really keen on. And that's why it starts with that huge genealogy that we covered about three weeks ago, because he wants to make sure that you see how Jesus fits inside the larger picture of salvation. The other thing that Matthew wants to do, he wants to make sure that you can see all the connections between what is Jesus doing, what Jesus is doing, and what is happening in the Exodus story, that story about God's rescue of his people out of Egypt. And Matthew's saying, there's a new Exodus that's taking place as well. So that's why Mike was talking last week about uh, the kingdom of God, or two weeks ago, about the kingdom of God and the Sermon on the Mount. What does that look like? What does the new kingdom look like? So we're going to look at two passages this morning, one in chapter 8 and then the one that was read in chapter 9. To set the stage, Jesus has accepted his role as Messiah. He's been through the wilderness. He's been tempted. He's come out on the other side. And he is give, he gave a, a three-chapter speech called the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of his dissertation about life and about how we're supposed to live and about who he is and what the kingdom of God looks like. Then he dismisses class. He says, all right, everybody take off. And he goes on a healing spree for about two or three chapters, one of several that's recorded in the Gospels. And to keep that movie metaphor going that we're doing, this is now the action scene. We're past character development. We're now on to the action scene of that blockbuster sequel about Exodus part two, God, part two. And so that's our focus today is to dive into the healings a little bit and talk about that. So first of all, let's dive into chapter eight. In this passage, it's up there if you want to read along, Jesus encounters a leper. Now some background about what leprosy is. 
This is not the same leprosy you hear about today or you might see in commercials or, or something like that. It's a catch-all term for skin disorders, usually skin lesions that were flaky and kind of white in color. And so a lot of artwork shows people with leprosy covered in, um, they're, they're like completely white from head to toe. So they were highly contagious, and that was a big problem in the biblical world. If you contracted leprosy, you were declared unclean by the priests, and you were exiled from the community. They called it being kicked um, to live outside the camp, living outside the camp. And when lepers came near people, they had to yell, unclean, unclean, at the top of their lungs, as loud as they could everywhere they went, so that people would know where they were so they could stay away from them. There were really strict rules about this. If you were up, uh, upstream from, from wind, it was a certain number of feet you had to stay away. If you were downstream from wind, it was a different number of feet that you had to stay away from people because that contagion they believed could be shared um, through the air or through, through wind, things like that. No one could touch you. No one, you would never feel the warmth of human contact again if you had leprosy, or at least until that was cleared up, however that may happened, if it happened at all. There was also a spiritual element to leprosy. In the book of Numbers, Moses' sister Miriam contracted leprosy because she disagreed with God about something, and boom, she had leprosy in this passage. So as the Jewish religion changed over time, and you'll hear this in the next story to this point, as it changed over time, the scribes and religious leaders of that time assumed that any disease, not just leprosy, was due to disobeying the law. Your sin, your family's sin, it didn't matter. If you contracted a disease, it was because you had sinned. So they used the story of Miriam's leprosy to blanket justify that idea, and it became a part of their culture, part of their understanding. So people spent a lot of trying to, fi- trying to figure out and uncover the sin that caused someone's disease, rather than comforting them in the fact that they were sick. It's not the most loving environment that uh, you've ever encountered. But if you weren't sure what caused a disease, i.e. coronavirus, for today or anything else, when, when we encounter these kind of things, wouldn't you spend your time trying to protect each other, quarantine people, make sure that that didn't spread? Sure you would. But they assumed that it was a theological reason, that there was sin involved. It's a primitive idea, but... That's what they did. So the leprous community at the time of Jesus, after having been religiously condemned, shouting unclean constantly, probably did not think very much of themselves, as you can imagine. They had a sinner's disease. I'm sure that reality slipped into the deepest parts of their identity, into their DNA. Spiritually unworthy, unworthy of love and touch, no sense of dignity. I'm sure they asked themselves every day, how can I be a child of God? How can I worship God, if I've been rejected and scorned by God. I mean, that's what I would want to know. How is this possible? Yet you still want me to be devoted to you, but you've stricken me with this disease. How does that work? And then something miraculous happens in this leprosy passage that we're looking at. Jesus happens. He walks up to the lepers, kneeled down in front of him, and the leper says something very important. And after you know that background about sin and Miriam and all that, it'll make a little more sense. He says, if you want to, you can make me clean. If you want to. Does that make sense? Do you understand why he would ask that? Why did he say that? Well, 
if God has cursed you with the disease because of your own personal sin and the sins of your family, why would he heal you from it if he's the one that punished you with it? That's a fair question. So the leper's going out on a limb there saying, hey, I don't know what's going on here, but I think if you will, you can heal me from this, which probably would mean that you would need to forgive me for the sin if you are in fact God. And so Jesus responds with something that means the most to this man, absolutely the most to this man. He touched him. He touched him. Something you weren't allowed to do. Something that he had not had anyone do in a very long time. Touched him. Now, no one knows how he touched him. And you're not supposed to touch a leper. We know that unless the love of that person is greater than the fear of that disease. Let me say that again. You wouldn't touch a leper unless the love for that leper was greater than the fear of the leprosy. It's an important point, and that applies in all areas of our, of our life. Now, once again, it doesn't say how he touched him, but I imagine Jesus touched him in a way that showed love and showed compassion. Maybe he held his hand like in this picture. Maybe he caressed his face. Maybe he gave him a, a big old bear hug. I don't know what he did. But whatever he did, he broke the rules because he touched the leper. Because he was more concerned about loving the leper than he was keeping the rules. Right? And right after doing that, Jesus says something that you need to know about his DNA. About God's DNA. Jesus says, I will. I will. Now the Bible translation here is very dull. English is a dull language. I don't know if you picked up on this. There are other languages that are much more interesting and much more full of life than English. Ours is kind of flat. So this translation is pretty dull, and it makes it sound like there was very little emotion behind Jesus' words, like, I will heal you. You know, kind of that. You've seen videos of that where Jesus is like this half zombie guy? You know, whatever. That's not, that's not it at all. The actual greet here is overflowing with emotion. It's overflowing with anger. It's overflowing with anger. Here's why. Have you ever been a victim of a rumor that stuck? Where someone close to you or a group of people used something that wasn't true to completely dismiss and undermine your good nature out of hand. It's happened to me more than once. Like Kendrick Lamar. You know the truth about what's in your DNA, but people have always told you and reinforced you a different story. Think about this. God in Jesus Christ was in that same position after performing countless miracles for these folks throughout biblical history. His chosen people that he says, you're my people, cannot get it through their thick skulls that he loved them and wanted healing and liberation and wholeness and peace for them. They just could not get it. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be if you were God of the universe? It'd, be mad. It'd just be maddening. They couldn't understand it. And they developed on top of that this demeaning forensic system where they made God the bad guy by combing through everyone's life to find out what secret sin they'd done to make that person diseased. Horrible. They would say things like, oh, Aunt Gertie 14 years ago broke the Sabbath and so now her, her uh, nephew has leprosy. I guess that's it. And so everybody is shamed. Everybody is demeaned. Everyone is condemned, God's reputation had suffered at the hand of some bad rumors that just were not true. Just were not true. And that's why Jesus responded so passionately when he did. 
The character of God was being vilified with his actions of healing and his response told, and with his actions of healing, his response told everybody around him that your rumors are not true. Of course not. Of course I want to heal you. I would, it breaks my heart to not heal you. That's who I am. That's my DNA. Why do you not know this yet? How many people do I have to heal? <laughs> you know, I'm sure he was crazy mad about it. I love you. I want to heal you. That's God's DNA. That's God's DNA. All right, so let's talk about the next story, chapter 9. The paralytic. Now, this story is similar. So first of all, let's talk about the paralytic's background. Here's the most important thing to know about the paralytic. Similar to the leper, the disabled, the blind, and the deaf, people with genetic issues in their life were told that their situation was due to sin. But it's, it's even worse. It's even worse. They were told that their conditions from birth were because someone in their family had sinned and God would inflict a child in the womb as punishment for that family's transgressions. And so if that child came out genetically disabled uh, with some um, hearing loss or eye loss or whatever the case may be, it was because someone sinned. It was because someone was sinned. Now, now, now that's horrible. I mean, the first one's bad. That's awful, absolutely atrocious at the core of it. Can you imagine trying to serve a God growing up as a young child with that permanent disability, whatever it may be, and realizing, being taught in school, that the reason you're the way you're, you are is because God did that to you. Uh, by the way, off to synagogue. Can you imagine? Be horrible. It would be horrible. Now, the Greek translated paralytic in this passage, or um, what was the other? I'm trying to remember what was in the scripture that was read, but it's an unusual word. So there's lots of Hebrew-based language that's inside the Greek that's more of an image-driven idea. And you kind of have to pull that out of the Greek in order to get the meaning. So here, the Greek word for paralytic carries kind of this Hebrew idiom inside of it, which means to loosen from the side. What does that mean? I don't know. It sounds totally weird if you take it literally. It doesn't make any sense. But here's kind of the image behind it in the Hebrew. Imagine a purposeful person walking with confidence in what they're doing and where they are going. And then something out of the blue knocks them off course. Knocks them off course, pulls them over to the side and puts them on a different trajectory than what they were on before. And there's nothing they can do about it. They didn't cause the issue it's out of your control, but you were affected by it for the rest of your life. That's what that word means. Other translations use the word weakened or feeble or palsied or disabled. They just used whatever word. The problem was something was wrong. They didn't know exactly what was wrong. God obviously had done it, so we're not going to worry about it. That's the way they approached it. No one really knows why he's suffering, but he's been taught that it's a generational sin. So unlike the leper, in this case with the paralytic, the result is literally embedded in his DNA. Literally in his DNA. That's what he's been taught. That he is sin-ridden at the molecular, at the cellular level, at the biological level. Can you imagine 
My goodness, what a horrible life to live. So Jesus does the same thing that he does with the leper, but he takes a different route. He does the same thing, but different. The leper knew that Jesus forgave him because he did what? He healed him, right? He was like, well, if I'm healed, then God must have forgiven me. So Jesus, with the paralytic, Jesus starts by saying, you're forgiven right off the bat. Now, this was an absolute baller move in this culture. No one thought Jesus would be so audacious as to say something like that. And of course, the religion folks around lost their ever-loving minds right on the spot because he was essentially saying that he was God. One certain group that went particularly to Jersey Shore in that moment is a group called the Scribes. By the time of Jesus, the scribes interpreted the Jewish law. They were kind of half theologian, professor, half, half lawyer. It doesn't take a genius to figure out why they had a full-blown meltdown. Only God forgives. And Jesus is saying he's God because he just tried to forgive this paralytic. So Jesus proves his point with an absolute divine mic drop in this situation. You can't, you can't forgive sins. Who do you think you are? So Jesus says, which is the simpler thing? Which one would you like for me to do first? Do you want me to forgive him or you want me to heal him? Oh, I can't heal him. Or I can't forgive him? Okay, well, let me heal him so you'll know that I can forgive him. Pow! Boom! Golly! Total baller move. Here's the point. All the actions that Jesus does are divine, and they are all things that he did to convey that he was the Messiah in that Jewish culture. But there's also more to the story beyond that. Jesus certainly is God. But we assume that his whole reason for doing miracles was to prove that. And in the book of Matthew, that was kind of the main reason, because it's the most Jewish of the Gospels. But it's not. Jesus is God, whether anyone believes it or not. Did you know that? I'm not sure. I have reservations about whether God's real. Well, you're fine. You can have reservations. doesn't change the fact that he's who he is, regardless of whether you choose to believe it. It's the same thing. Jesus is God whether anyone believes it or not, you or me or anyone else. Only one specific group of people was looking for Jesus to confirm that he was the Messiah, and that was the Jewish people. But Jesus came for more than that group, didn't he? Who did he come for? He came for, he came for everybody. He came for everybody. So it would be better to see Jesus' healing as an expression of his love for you and me than a confirmation of his divinity. It's an expression of his love, not a confirmation of who he is. God knows who he is. He's just trying to help you understand how much he loves you. And that's what he did for the paralytic. That's what he did for the leper. God is love. That's God's DNA. Therefore, God heals because it's his nature to heal and to restore. God protects. God liberates. God forgives for those same reasons. Because that's who he is, and that's what God does. The list goes on and on. And healing was one of the ways that Jesus continues to imprint the new Exodus story on people, the new freedom, because healing in that society represented a second level of freedom and a restoration to family and society that they didn't have. I want us to watch uh, this video for a minute, and then we'll wrap things up this morning.
I don't consider myself an artist or an inspiration. I just consider myself maybe like a dreamer. Painting up on the roof kind of allows me to escape from the busyness of the city and focus. I get to see all of the chaos and all of the movement around me, but I get to go at my own pace. I started painting on x-rays because I needed a canvas that people would pay attention to rather than focusing on my artwork. That gives me time to prepare myself for when they say, so what does this mean? It's almost like a personal thing to me, what it means or, or why you put it together. It's almost like you don't want to share it, it's your own little secret. Somebody probably looked at this x-ray with, with so much anxiety that they have this deformity or this disfigurement for the rest of their life and I take it and make it something that people will enjoy. You don't go in and show somebody an x-ray and say, look at how healthy I am. You want to see the tragedy in it. You, it the x-rays are the only things that, you, uh, that I can really think about that you want to see what's wrong with it. The perfect ones are the ones that get thrown away. The more broken an x-ray is, the more excited I get to paint on it. You can actually see there's a picture of that pain. I don't think that that should be hidden. It's beautiful in itself. I lost my father when I was 15, and I think a lot of times people will use that as an excuse to kind of just completely go off the path that they're on. But to me, I had an incredible, amazing, encouraging father for 15 years of my life, which is more than most people can say for their living fathers. So I think there's always something broken and you can always take it and put it into a positive and that's the way that you, you rise up. You really can't experience happiness and, until you've experienced pain because then you're able to compare the difference. God's salvation for the human race is a holistic event, spirit, mind, and body. Forgiveness and healing go hand in hand in the ministry of Jesus. Now, we're a lot like the leper. We aren't sure God really likes us that much, or if he's even willing to consider helping us find a path to healing, if you want to. I know you know everything I've done. I know everything I've done. And if I know that, I'm not sure how you're helping me, right? And when we say that to God, God gets in our face and he says, of course I want to heal you. Of course I want to heal you. It breaks my heart for you to think otherwise. That's my identity. That's my DNA, says God. And then he embraces you when no one else will touch you because that's who he is. We're also a lot like the paralytic. 
We often can't look past our own genetic DNA that we've buried inside of ourselves and taken on as our own identity. Things like our upbringing, things like our struggles, our own patterns of victimization. We can't see past those things to get to a place where God can move on us and, and heal us from the inside out. Paralytics made a really, really good living financially at that time because the religious people were trained to give alms to the poor, to give to the poor as they passed by. So to be healed meant that the paralytic had to give up his lifestyle, his, his income, and had to find a new way to live among those people. Sometimes it's hard to trade in the handouts we might receive for the wholeness that God wants to give. Let me say that again. Sometimes it's hard to trade in the handouts we might receive from our victimization in order to throw off that victimization to have God heal us and to move on to something different. It's your choice. And if God moves on you, you'll be confronted with those choices. That's part of the deal. That's part of the deal. But that's not really who we are, that victim mentality. That's not who we are. We're not victims of whatever makes it easiest for us to continue living with our pain and identifying making that pain our identity. That's not who we are. It may feel that way, but who you are is a child of God. You are a child of God. That's your DNA. Your DNA at E3 is an irresistible community of radically transformed disciples. An irresistible community of radically transformed disciples. That's who you are. Even if you don't feel like it, that's who you are. And we're going to keep telling you that until you begin to believe it. You tell other people that that's who you are and you begin to act like it. We're going to tell you over and over. God wants to heal you. God has always wanted to heal you. Not just symbolically, but spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and yes, physically. You're allowed to believe that without being embarrassed. It's biblical. You're allowed to believe that without feeling naive or gullible. It's part of the Christian tradition. It's part of who we are. Now, I don't have all the answers as to why miracles happen or don't happen, and no one else does either. And if they tell you that, then they're, they're making stuff up. But something not happening when we ask for it doesn't mean that we have to stop believing that it could happen if we ask the next time. Does that make sense? Be brave. Immerse yourself in the unconditional love of God that He loves you without reservation. And then ask God for whatever you desire. Ask Him. Just ask. Our act of worship is not always getting what we ask for every time. Our act of worship is simply in asking and believing that it's okay to ask and allowing Him to welcome us into that reality of His love for us. Amen? Amen. If you will, uh, remain standing for just a second. Close your eyes with me. I want to walk you through a meditation that you can take with you to, to deal with this topic as you, as you pray on your own. 
So with your eyes closed, imagine yourself in, a, in an auditorium. It could be your school elementary auditorium. It could be high school. Uh, it could be Ruby Diamond Auditorium. It could be where you saw your favorite band play one time, whatever it may be, where there are seats out there and all that. So imagine yourself entering from a stage left, and you begin walking out on stage, and um, you have a limp that pulls you slightly to the right with every step and you don't know this but when you walk out on the stage and the lights come up every person that's either abused or harassed or emotionally eviscerated you or beat you up every doctor that gave you a horrible um, results from a test is there and they're all talking to you They're all yelling at you about how worthless you are. Some of them walk by, they spit on you, they punch punch you. They uh, create open wounds on you. And every time you walk, the further you go, the further you start to limp, and the harder it is to stand because of the pain. You walk past that doctor that gave you that diagnosis. You walk past all the people around you that that therapist that told you about that mental disorder that you have. And with every step, you get lower and lower and sink and sink under the weight of who people say you are. And it's crushing to your spirit and it's crushing to your, to your body. And as you're walking, you can barely make it to the other side. You're not there quite yet. And you haven't noticed because you're basically fighting for your life at this point. Someone walks in the back of the auditorium, starts walking up the aisle. You don't know who it is, but you see a figure walking that way. And then under the back, the backlighting that flashes back on the front two rows of the theater, someone comes into that light and it's Jesus. And he's smiling at you. He says, my goodness, look at all this. And he says, come on, come on. He reaches his hand up. He says, come on me. Come on. And you walk over to the edge of the stage. You take his hand. And then he helps you down off the stage. And then you're like, come on, let's get out of here. That's what he says. Come on, let's go. So he starts walking normally, like Jesus would probably walk. But you're still hobbling. You're hampered by all of this. You're hampered by the physical disease, the, the deformity that you feel by all the emotional stress. And so he starts walking, but he gets seven, eight rows beyond you because you just can't keep up. And so he stops. He realizes you're, right, you're not right behind him. He goes, oh, he looks back and he goes, oh, that's right. Let's take care of this real quick. And he walks over and he gives you a big bear hook. And he pats you on the back and he says, it's gonna be all right. That's not your DNA. And then he lets go of you. He says, all right, come on, let's go. And you realize that you can now walk, you're completely healed. And so you walk next to him down the aisle. As he's smiling at you, you bust out the double doors of the theater. You're outside. And all the screaming and yelling, they're still yelling at you from the stage. You can barely hear it anymore because you're out of their range. And when the doors close, it's all gone. And Jesus has just created your exodus. He's freed you. He's freed you. And then he smiles at you out in the sunlight, and you smile at him. You start walking down the road, 
And then Jesus starts playing around. He starts jogging and carrying on. And then you start jogging with him. And then you guys start laughing. You take off racing down the street together in a full-on race like you were in elementary school. That's the freedom God wants for you. That's the love of God in action. That's the exodus, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and physically, that God desires for every one of his children. That's your DNA. That's your DNA. Your DNA is full of the love of God from the top of your head to the soles of your feet and expresses itself in full wholeness and healing and peace and safety and love. That's who you are. Don't dare believe anything different. Don't believe anything different than that. Amen? Amen. Amen.